0: If you would open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We are finishing up our sermon series in the book of Jonah. Beginning next week, uh, we are going to be doing four weeks, a uh, topical series, four weeks on uh, the doctrine of Scripture. And we're really excited because. Where's Nathan Taylor? He's in here somewhere. I saw him earlier. His dad's coming. he just step out for a second. Oh, he's teaching Sunday school. Okay. Uh, his dad, Chris Taylor, who is in Bentonville, Arkansas, he's actually going to come open up that series for us this coming Sunday. Um, and then we're also going to have Jacob Derham's going to be preaching on Memorial Day weekend. And trust me, you don't want to miss that. Uh, we will also have Austin Royal, who is RUF uh, Arkansas, who is here for the installation service. He'll be coming to preach on June 4th. So we're really excited to have uh, these brothers come in to preach. We're in Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, for which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word teaches us, confronts us, rebukes us, admonishes us, calms us, and trains us. And for all of us in here in many different ways, that is what your word will do by the Holy Spirit right now. We're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would give us faith to believe what you are saying right here. And we ask that as we hear what you are saying, that we would grow in our knowledge of your grace. And as we know your grace, that we might grow in our repentance. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. What's worse Than hypocrisy. In Washington, D.C., a prominent politician was to serve as chairman for a banquet, but he ran into a last-second emergency, which caused him to be late. But nevertheless, the banquet went on without him, and at this banquet, the man of honor was actually a priest. And after they honored the priest, the priest came up on stage to give a speech, and here's what he said. When I came to Washington some 25 years ago, oh, I thought I had come to a terrible place. The first man who ever entered into the confessional told me of his horrific sins and corruption. But I knew that as the days went on that I had actually entered into a fine community of lovely people. Indeed, it has been my honor to have been among you for all these fine years. Now, as he was speaking, the politician mentioned earlier, he finally made it to the banquet and he ran up to the stage right as the priest was finishing his speech, and he got up to speak next. And not hearing the speech, here's what he said. I'll never forget the first day our honored guest arrived in our parish. In fact, I have the distinct honor of being the first person to ever go to his confessional. Well, you know, what that turned into... And here's what people notice, is that this politician who was acting like he had everything together was clearly outed. Nothing is worse than hypocrisy, right? Unless you add anger to it. The only thing that's worse than hypocrisy is when it's combined with anger. And the angry hypocrite is probably one of the most frustrating people to ever come across, right? Here's what David Pallison says in his book, Good and Angry. Anger makes us crazy, blind, confused, and confusing. Anger makes us crazy, blind, confused, and confusing. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there's a better description of Jonah than that quote? <laughs> Doesn't, haven't we been, as we've looking at him through the weeks, we've been seeing him and we think, you're nuts. You, you're clearly blind to what's going on. You're, you're so confused, and you're even confusing us. And that's exactly what's happened. Remember, Jonah's name means dove, and he's just senseless. What's happened in this book is that God called Jonah to go preach to Nineveh, but he ran away. Nevertheless, God mercifully saved him by his grace, even providing a miracle through providing a great fish to swallow him up and then spit him out on dry land. Jonah ends up going to Nineveh and he preaches and Nineveh has this revival of repentance and God has mercy upon Nineveh and then here's what Jonah does. He's angry at God's grace. And we see someone who is crazy, blind, confused and confusing, right? Right? But it's really easy to let Jonah just be Jonah while we sit on the outside saying, yeah, he needs to get it together. (laughs) But we know, we know what's good. But maybe we're a little more like Jonah than we realize. Maybe we also can be angry hypocrites as well. What we need to see first, looking at verse 5, is that hypocritical anger always drives us away from the Lord. Look at verse 5, Jonah went out of the city, talking about Nineveh, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now here's what's interesting is that actually in verse 4, remember the Lord ended with, do you do well to be angry? Is your anger justified? Do, Do you really have the right to be angry for how I give my grace? Did you notice that Jonah did not respond to him? Here's actually what's very interesting about whenever we are struggling with hypocrisy, especially when we're angry, is that we don't pray. We cease to pray, but rather we just speak to ourselves. And Jonah, he doesn't pray to God. He ignores God and he goes out of the city. It says that, he made for himself a booth there. This is filled with irony because this would remind uh, these, this, these original readers of the Feast of Booths described in Leviticus 23. What is the Feast of Booths? Here's what it was. So one person says this was a time to thank God for all of the year's provision and to pray for a good rainy season which would last from October through March. Primarily, however, the Feast of Booths was designed to remember the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan when God made his people live in booths or tents. During the time of the Feast of Booths, each Israelite family was supposed to construct a booth and live in it for a week. And these booths were small temporary shelters with thatched roofs of palm branches and other plants. Living in these booths for a week reminded them that their success in Canaan was entirely on account of God's grace. It was to remind them that he brought them to the good land and he could just as easily take them out of it. Do you not see the irony there? Jonah is putting himself in his own timeout. He's putting himself, as we have made up, we call it Cry Corner in our house. He's putting his own self in Cry Corner, and it's filled with irony, it's filled with hypocrisy within and without. Because as he's grumbling about God's grace, he has literally constructed this booth. That is supposed to remind him of God's grace. See, we too, like Jonah, we have hypocrisy within, and we also have it without. Jonah, as he sits there, he's hoping that God might change his mind after changing his mind, right? God had told Nineveh that unless you repent, calamity, disaster will be coming upon you for all your evil and they repented and God turned from his anger. But now it's as if Jonah is saying, well, maybe there's a chance he'll turn back and give his anger and wrath upon them again. We can often be like Jonah whenever people come to church or in our friend groups and whenever they're converted, but we, we really want to see God rough them up to just set them straight. That's what we often want God to do. And it's this, this hypocritical anger that we have. It's this self-righteousness, and it fails to move towards others. And instead of moving towards others, it demands them, you move towards me. And this is why it often results in gossip. We might not call it gossip, we just call it honesty, but the honesty is slandering and putting others beneath us. In our self-righteousness, if, if we've been wronged or if we feel like we've been wronged, then we, we sit back and we wait for other people to approach us. We do just like what Jonah did. We typically, in our hypocrisy, in our self-righteousness, in our anger, we don't make any changes. And we fail to help others make any change. Why? Because we're the ones who are right. And if other people are going to be mature in the Christian faith, then you need to be like me. That's what we often do. You need to be like me. You need to see things my way. You need to have the family like I have this family. You need to read the books that I read. You need to listen to the podcasts that I listen to. Until you're like me, then we're just different. We need to ask ourselves the question, are we moving towards someone or are we just talking about someone? Jonah is not like Motel Six's slogan. We'll leave the light on for you. Rather, Jonah is like, as it were, a gated neighborhood saying, you can't enter unless you have some sort of secret password. On a cold February night in 2001, Erica, who was one year old, had somehow wandered out of her house, and she spent the entire night outside. Obviously, it was very cold. It was snowy. And her mother found Erica, who appeared to be almost totally frozen. Her legs were stiff. Her body uh, was almost immovable. All the signs of life appeared to be gone. Erica was then treated at Edmonton's Children's Health Center. And to the amazement of doctors, the toddler showed no sign of brain damage. They gave Erica a clear prognosis, and she would soon hop and skip and play like the other girls her age. And that's a phenomenal story. A true story. But here's what self-righteous people do. Here's what hypocrites do. They say, well, it's her fault for getting out of the house anyway. That's what Jonah's doing with Nineveh. We see God's grace upon this wretched people. And when they turn and repent, and Jonah's saying, well, they're sinners anyway. That's their own fault. Not many of us are like Abraham Lincoln who once said, he has the right to criticize who has the heart to help. I had Jake read this portion of scripture from Luke 15 earlier because in a lot of ways when Jesus tells the parable of really the two lost sons and the gracious father there's probably good reason that Jesus has the story of Jonah in mind. Because not only did one son run away, but then another son was very self-righteous and didn't want to see the Father's grace go to whoever he wanted. And like the older son in that parable, it's when the son, his younger brother comes back, he's probably longing to see the shaming ceremony that would have happened. Instead, when... The Father welcomes him back. He is angry. And that's what self-righteous people do. They get angry when people embrace others who are worse than themselves. See, the irony about self-righteousness is this. Self-righteous people can see other people's sin that might be very heinous. But then when those people repent, they harden their heart and end up making their own sins just as heinous. I remember when I was in Jackson, Mississippi, I would often go and do these school chapels and FCA's or whatever else it might be, and I found it very fascinating that it was often in the public schools when there was no clear spiritual Christian presence that they tended to listen more eagerly than some of the local Christian schools. You see, the self-righteous, they're never happy to see sinners draw near to Jesus. They're quick to look at any sort of sign of repentance and say, well, they're they're just hypocritical. It won't last. But for Jonah and the older son, They're only in the position that they're in because of the Father's mercy. Amen? Matthew 7, verse 5, Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And that is a tough text. When we are living in hypocrisy, we do the opposite of what John the Baptist said and. John 3:30 when he said he talking about Jesus he must increase but I must decrease. In our hypocrisy we say I must increase and everyone else including Jesus must decrease. But did you notice something in this text? What direction did Jonah move? Look at it again. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the what? East. I remember my Hebrew professor, Mike McKelvey, saying that for, most, for the most part in the Bible, moving eastward is always bad. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and when they sinned, they had to leave the Garden of Eden, guess which direction they had to go? East. Here's what's so fascinating. There's a little bit of a parallel here. Adam and Eve thought God was stingy. Remember Satan tempts them saying, who, do you, who does he think he is? That he's, he's holding out on you. You can't eat of this tree. You should take it because then you can be like God. They thought God was stingy. Here's what Jonah thinks. Jonah thinks God is just reckless with his grace. But here's the point. They both don't believe God's word. And that's what it comes down to. Some of you might think God is too stingy. Some of you think God might be too reckless with his grace. But the problem is that both parties don't believe God's word. And whenever we don't believe God's word, it always places us east of Eden. Maybe this is being implied here, but remember God's special presence was in the Garden of Eden. And then Adam and Eve were kicked out to the east this might be implied, I'm not sure. But as God had visited the people of Nineveh, then you see Jonah going out east. Do you see maybe what's being implied there that God's presence is more with Nineveh than it is with Jonah in that moment? That's what happens when we're hypocritical. How different is Jesus? Jesus who instead of running away from sinners, ran to them. Jesus putting himself underneath the swords that the angels who were blocking the entrance to the Garden of Eden, it's as if Jesus put himself underneath those swords so that he might gain us entrance into God's presence. How different is his heart from us? Hypocritical anger always Drives us away from the Lord's presence. But look at verse 6. Verses 6 through 7. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly, exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. You see God's patience and his grace with Jonah. Again, you see that word in verse 6, appointed. God has been appointing all this different stuff through this book. He appointed the wind, the storm, the water, the fish, the plant, the worm, the wind again, the sailors, the Ninevites. All these things respond to God's appointing, but not Jonah. You see, it's very clear picture here that in the book of Jonah, there is only one sovereign, even though we wish we could be the sovereign. This is not the fullness of what it means to be a Christian, but being a Christian is nothing less than saying this. There's only one God, and I'm not him. And in the book of Jonah, we see that there is only one sovereign, Jonah is not him. And whether it is something as big as a fish or as big as a storm or as small as a plant or worm, God sovereignly ordains all things. And not one molecule is outside of his control. And in God's sovereignty, he appoints a plant to make it come up over Jonah. You see it there. Now, this is very fascinating it says that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Maybe you have a footnote on that verse there. And that footnote would, could even say, or save him from his evil. What's happening here? This is where the Bible's awesome. There's probably a play on words here where in one sense the Lord is giving him physical comfort. But then the Lord is also, by giving him this physical comfort, is also helping his anger to dissipate. What's so fascinating is that Jonah does not see the irony of his situation. God provides for Jonah shade from the sun. And he's trying to deliver Jonah from his own anger, but Jonah is not going to respond. But we do see something very important here. How do we deal with people who are just angry? How do we deal with hypocrites? You know what the worst thing to do is? I love Jonathan. I'm going to pick on Jonathan. You're, just, it's just, you're right there, so it just works out. Um, when Jonathan's angry, here's what you don't do. Stop being so angry, because what will it do? It'll make him more angry. Rather, here's what God does. His first approach is patience and grace. He asks Jonah questions. He's listening to Jonah. He's trying to get to the heart. He's being patient. God's actually abiding by his own wisdom. In Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I think it's a very good lesson for us to learn here of how God approaches angry people. Jonah responds, look at that, he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. What seems to be happening is that as Jonah is glad, he's probably glad because he thinks, ah, God's favoring me now. I'm right. Just like the older son, the parable of the prodigal son He's demanding of the Father, give me the goat, give me the feast. But like Jonah and like the older son, hypocrites can't embrace the gospel of grace. Here's what we tend to forget. Jonah and us, we forget that God sovereignly provides for us everything we're going to get going, Eddie. Come on now. You got me in an amen. He sovereignly provides for us everything. He knitted us in the womb. He developed our vital organs. He put breath in our lungs. He protected us from deadly diseases. He gave us food. He gave us bodies. Every job, every child, every skill, every good interest, every friend, every delightful thought, Every timely opportunity, every success, every penny, every bed and pillow, every moment of forgiveness and every moment of joy. He gave it to us. Do this for me, real quick. Breathe in, breathe out. Did you cause that? God gave you that breath. And yet we have the audacity to look at him and say, who do you think you are? Even as Christians, God's the one who gave us new hearts. He gave us the faith to believe. He gave us justification. He gave us a spotless righteousness. He gave us free forgiveness. He gave us the growth in holiness. He's the one who gave us the scriptures. He's given us a heart for prayer. He's given many of us gifts for ministry. He's given all of us at this very moment the opportunity to hear the gospel. Even the very sin in our sinful nature, He has kept it from being as bad as what it could be. Every good book that we read, every good podcast we hear, every sermon we sit under, every godly desire we have, or any mission trip, God's the one who has given it to us. Amen? Isn't it? Let's pull that David Pallison quote back up. Don't we see how our anger makes us crazy, blind, confused, and confusing? He's given us everything. But Jonah can't see it. Love what one person says, self-righteousness is like bad breath. You can't tell, but others can. hard part about confronting someone with hypocrisy, self-righteousness, and anger is that it takes truly a work of God's grace. But yet God is patient the entire time. Amen? How patient is God with us despite all this? And how different is Jesus once again from Jonah? Jonah who thought he deserved everything Jesus, who willingly gave up everything. Jesus, who truly deserved all things, yet willingly laid them down so that he might pursue hypocrites. Because that's all we are. By the way, welcome to the church. This is who we are. Let's see how Jonah responds to this. Look at verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, is it better for me to die than to live? But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. You see here how Jonah's hypocrisy and anger and self-righteousness, it just drives him into despair. God yet again appoints, doesn't he? This time he he appointed not only the plant, but then also the worm. The worm withers the tree, or the, the plant, and then the scorching east wind is what beats down upon Jonah. And here is what we see is that God as the sovereign, He has the right and the power to kill and to make alive. He has the right. That is so hard to embrace, but the reality is that there is only one sovereign. It's interesting that it doesn't say when it says in verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. Earlier it had said the Lord God, meaning Yahweh God, but now it only says God. Because Jonah has wanted to reject Yahweh, and it's almost as if now he's only getting God. God does not have to give us mercy. That's literally the definition of what mercy is. He does not have to give us grace because by definition, grace is totally undeserved. The moment it's even a little bit deserved, it's what you're owed. It's not a gift. But Jonah thinks he's owed God's grace. If if we're not careful in the church, we can raise up people, we can develop a culture where we can think we are owed God's favor. And when we do that, we become just like Jonah. God brings this scorching east wind. Wind in the Bible is often used by God to execute judgment. And so you kind of see something happening here. Jonah is receiving what he wished God would bring upon Nineveh. Jonah is receiving this temporal judgment because he has not repented. It's interesting the way it's talking about the sun beat down on Jonah. It's it's almost as if it's saying the sun is attacking Jonah. You know, you would think like, dude, first off, there's a storm. Do you remember that? I don't know if you remember that. Then these guys threw you overboard. Then there was a fish. And then it spat you out. Then there was a miraculous revival. What more do you want? But that's what hypocrisy does to us. And as Jonah is just boiling in his anger, the Lord is showing him what's really happening. Jonah... It seems as if here he's attacking and challenging God, but what one person says in verse 8 when it says, and he asked that he might die, it it could be translated as saying, and Jonah said to himself. So it might still be in in the theme of Jonah still trying to ignore God. And notice what he says here. Notice where his ungodly anger brings him. It brings him to, frankly, being suicidal. It's better for me to die than to live. And when God responds back, he says, once again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? When he says, do you do well to be angry for the plant, it's not merely saying, like, is this doing you good, which clearly it's not. But it also means this, Jonah, is your anger justified? Do you have a legit reason for why you should be angry at me right now? And he doesn't. Jonah is treating God as if God is his servant. Jonah has forgotten what Psalm 115.3 says. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Even Paul in Romans 9 verse 20, far later after Jonah After Paul has been talking so much about God's sovereign grace, he anticipates people grumbling against God, but then Paul says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? That's tough. It's one thing to ask questions about how does this make sense. It's a whole other thing to say, God's wrong a different thing. And we often, like Jonah, we demand that God answer us. We often treat God as if his character is like Jonah. But for Jonah, the problem is this, is that he thinks the problem is the object of his anger rather than the posture of his sinful heart. He thinks the problem is out there rather than in here. And that's what hypocrisy says. Everyone else is the problem, but I'm fine. It's not like what happens whenever there's, you know, an AA meeting. Hi, my name's Bob and I'm an alcoholic. It's not like saying, hi, my name's Wilson and I have an anger problem. That's not what Jonah's doing. But do you want to know the first way to repent? is when you actually say, yes, hi, my name is Wilson, and I have an anger problem. You're supposed to say, hi, Wilson, I'm just kidding. See, actually what we learn from Scripture is that it's not a matter of if you have an anger problem, but it's a matter of will you recognize it. We all have an anger problem. Sometimes for us it shows up in bitterness. Sometimes it shows up in the silent treatment. Sometimes it shows up in just, we're, we just criticize everything we all have an anger problem but the question is will we realize that the problem is because of our sinful hearts rather than just placing the blame outward And it's as Jonah does not repent it develops into such extreme that he even has suicidal thoughts as one person says he felt he was being victimized by what had happened to him and that mindset led him to great despair. It's so... It's so confronting and convicting that when we realize that this can happen to us, that we can end up in the same place. We need to ask ourselves some questions. Are we the people like Jonah who are constantly grumbling about things like food, house, friends, news, or what others do? Grumbling about what others wear, or how you look, or how others look, or what decisions your leaders make, or grumbling about your parents, or grumbling about your children, or your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, teachers, or whatever it might be. As one person once told me, uh, what's the common denominator in all your grumbling? You. <laughs> it's kind of like, don't tell me that. But that's what happens in our self righteous Anger. you know what we also do? We also do this. As you're hearing this, you say, I really wish so-and-so were here to hear this. I need to find this recording and send it to them. Or you do this. Maybe you're a parent and you're nudging your child, being like, you listening to this? (laughs) Or you're secretly saying, I wish the other person who's maybe across the room from me, I wish they would hear this. Or I wish the preacher would hear this. Here's the thing. We all need to hear this. Because whenever the word of God is proclaimed, the first thing is not to think, I wish so and so would hear this, is to say, are you hearing this? That's what God's telling Jonah. Look at verse 11, or excuse me, verse 10. You pity the plant. You didn't make it grow. You didn't labor for it. He's telling Jonah, Jonah, this is crazy. God finally moves to the point where he actually does confront him. And in verse 11 he says, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? Interestingly, can't we often find ourselves, our hearts hurting more for the dog that is lost in the middle of the road than for the lost souls in Stillwater? Can we be honest? We often put such lower things more up on our priorities when God is saying, look at what matters. We often treat corporate worship as optional, but we'll never miss an OSU game. We'll make sure people know that we have the right answers rather than patiently loving them and helping them wrestle with the truth. We're Maybe so obsessed with our own productivity that we forget to actually nurture our own souls. We're more ready to talk about sports ever, actually over talking about the gospel. We can care more about making the church big than making the church holy. We care more about making the unbelieving world happy than being faithful to God's word and actually loving to people. We're Jonah. I'm Jonah, you're Jonah. Hi, my name's Jonah. There we go. Thank you, Susie. And what God is saying is this. I have a heart for the lost. I have the heart that you don't have. And you see here, not only is God confronting Jonah, but He's also showing us that He is the God of grace. Amen? That he would dare to save Nineveh. And he even says, I don't just care about Nineveh, I care about the cattle. God likes dogs. Don't, you know, we'll talk about cats. But <laughs> he, he cares about it. he's saying, Jonah, you pity the plant. Can I not even pity at least the cattle? That's what we often do in our self-righteousness. But God is saying, I care about your soul, even yours, Jonah. And that's the mercy that God gives to us. Is that even when we're self-righteous, God is not self-righteous as it were towards us. God moves towards us. And God moves towards us not just by sending just someone else, but by sending himself. And sending a greater Jonah Who would actually have a heart for the people who are just as wretched in their hearts as Jonah and the Ninevites. And he would be their substitute. And he would take the scorching wind of God's wrath upon him on the cross. So that we might be saved. Amen? It's interesting to think about, why does the book end this way? Because of this. Just like the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus intends for it to end that way. He doesn't give us this nice, neat answer, because the book is reaching out and saying, how will you respond? This is not a, hey, come listen to someone talk about this thing, and then you can go out and live your own life. God is telling all of us in here, how will you respond to my grace? Because all we are is by his mercy, amen? A told in 1929 of a man named George Wilson. He robbed a mail carrier and killed him. He was sentenced to die, but he received a presidential pardon. And to the shock of the Oval Office, he rejected the pardon. The president of the U.S. had set him free, but George Wilson had said no. And so the case about what was to happen, it went to Supreme Court and the issue was simply this, if the President of the United States gives you a pardon, aren't you pardoned? Can, can you reject a pardon given by a sovereign? Well, the Chief Justice Marshall made his decision and it simply read this, A pardon rejected is no pardon at all. Unless the recipient of the pardon accepts the pardon, then the pardon cannot be applied. My friends, in the gospel of grace, Jesus Christ is offering you pardon and mercy and forgiveness of all your sins. But the book is leaving us with this. Will you embrace the grace? Or will you sit back like Jonah and keep enduring the scorching east wind? Jesus is ready to receive you but you must believe in him. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that after these weeks in this book that you would graciously shape our hearts to actually respond to your grace. We know that your word does the work, and so we're asking that by the Spirit, through our faith, that you would cause us to believe your grace. So lead us now to the table help us to also yet again see your mercy and your grace. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.